something, the better you'll see. And what I see right now are kids leaving the sanctuary, which reminds me <laughs> that when Pastor Pat is sick and you have a lot of extra things on your mind, you forget stuff. And uh, thank you for being flexible. Children ages three years old through fifth grade going to be dismissed to Bible Explorers. Karen Schwartz and team, thank you so much. Microphone's on. All right. I'll try that again. So if you're our guest, welcome to Faith Community Bible Church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in 1 Peter, which happens to be a book towards the back of the Bible. It's page 1014 in your pew Bible. We want to read that and follow along together. And we've been doing a series, week after week, going through this statement called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed was used in the early church to summarize what Christians believe. And we've been going through it because we have been saying the more words you have for something, the better you see that thing. Okay, And so you know how to use that better. And an easy example would just be, we use the word saw. We have a lot of carpenters in our church. I'm trying to redo some stairs at our house. And having the right saw matters for the job. There is a coping saw. That's not for stairs. It's for molding. It doesn't help you cope. It actually helps you create this really weird angle that hangs over another piece of molding that takes a lot of time for me, and I'm not sure if it's worth it. I just like some square corners, you know? <laughs> there is a miter saw and a compound saw, and they are the same. Why do they have two names? Maybe one moves this way as well. There is a skill saw. You do need some skills for that. If you look at my skill saw, the wire, <laughs> well, it got eaten up in the in the saw, and so now it's spliced together and it hangs there with a, a wire nut and some electrical tape around it. Special. A router? Is that technically a saw? Survey says? Okay, then I won't even go down that way. I used a router for the first time yesterday, and uh, but that was just more of me bragging than anything, so... Uh, <laughs> I won't show you the work. You can just say that I, I turned it on and I used it, all right? Um, but all of those kinds of saws, hacksaw, chainsaw, it really helps you see what's needed in that situation to get the desired result. And there is a tool for everything, and sometimes it's just going, you know what, I need the right tool for the job. And when it comes to understanding what we believe, all of these words matter, and all these words mean something, but yet, even as familiar as these words are and as elementary as these words are, sometimes we don't use the same dictionary or we've uh, redefined them and perhaps none more than the word church. Over the past couple weeks, we've been saying we believe in the holy Catholic church and the response has been, Pastor Josh, why are we reading that at a church that is not Catholic? I don't like saying that. There are others that when they go back to Catholic Church to be with their relatives, they say when we get to that part and we recite it that I stay silent. I don't like saying that sentence. Completely agree. So let's just do a little bit of reflection here. What do you think the word church means? It's a word we're familiar with. But have you ever stopped to think about what does it mean and how we use it? What do you think the church is supposed to be and do? Take a second. See if you could think of how would you define church? And to finally settle all the 
frustration, the holy Catholic Church, every single one of those words matter. The word Catholic is not capitalized in the creed. It doesn't say the Roman Catholic Church. It says the holy Catholic Church. What does Catholic mean? It means universal. So when they wrote that, they said the holy universal church in the sense that there is one universal church, global church. Now, we're a local body, but there is one universal church. Unfortunately, sometime later, the Catholics took a little bit of pride, I'd say just a little bit, to say that they are the universal church. That's part of why they have their sacraments. You have to go there and be baptized there and take the Mass there because they are the universal church. But really, the Apostles' Creed just means we are the holy Catholic, the holy universal church. And some translations say the holy Christian church today just to help us not have that, that hang-up. So uh, we've made you endure that for about 10 weeks. Thank you for your patience, and I hopefully... Now, as we think more about what is the church, we're going to do something called Mythbusters. Anybody in here seen the TV show Mythbusters? It's one of our favorite shows that I used to like when we had cable TV. Uh, one of my favorite episodes was Will the Duct Tape Boat Float? And guess what? It does. The other one that I've enjoyed watching as they blow stuff up, kind of a combination between Ben Cucci, Don Flint, Pat Testerman, those are three guys that should never become friends in one church. Uh, <laughs> but here's one episode of, will your hot water heater, if it blows up, actually blow through your roof? <laughs> yes, it will go 150 feet in the air. So now all the parents that are wondering where that hot water heater is into their kid's bedroom, you know, just make sure it's that kid. You know what I'm saying? All right. Um, but yeah, 150 feet into the air. It will blow up. But when we're talking about the church, there are all kinds of myths that are floating around about what is a church, what is it supposed to be, what is it supposed to do. Maybe even questions that we should ask whether you're our guest this morning or whether you're here every single Sunday. What is the church? Listen to some of these myths and see if you've heard them before. I've been here 12 years and I've heard every single one of them here. The church is for perfect people. When I get my life together, then I'll come. can't tell you how many contractors came to help build this building and the other building that said, oh, you don't want me darkening those doors. It'll fall. The place will burn up if I come in. And you say, no, the church is not for perfect people. We are all sinners saved by grace. Next, the church is a building that we go to on Sundays. We use that term all the time. That's a beautiful church. That church is falling apart. All because, and what are we talking about? The building, right? It's the building. That's not how the Bible used the term. People don't enter a church. The church enters a building. You get that? People don't enter a church. The church enters a building. You don't have to have a building to be a church. Places in Africa, places around the world right now are worshiping Christ as a church underneath a shaded tree. Sometimes in a home. The church is a time or a place. Not true. This next one I hear often. The church exists to meet my needs. Now, people don't come out and say that. But according to the Babylon Bee, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is allegedly quoted as saying, 
ask not what you can do for the church. Ask what your church can do for you. Now, if you don't know the Babylon Bee, it's a group of satire, and uh, they wrote a chapter on finding and becoming the perfect Christian. And the chapter about the church is how to serve in the church without lifting a finger. And it's a whole mockery of the American church. But how familiar does that sound in our individualistic, self-centered approach to finding a local church? I ran into this just yesterday at the Loudon Old Home Day. Ran into some people that were dear friends of ours that have, for the past two years, been church hopping, shopping, looking around. And you know what she told me? I wish we could take a little bit of every church because every church is a, a little bit right, and I wish we could put all that together, and it would just be the church that I like. And I said, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Why? Well, God loves your messy, broken church. And while you, well, let me say it this way. Until you are around the throng of God in heaven, you will join the wrong church. Does that sound weird coming from a pastor? You will join the wrong church, just like you will marry the wrong person. What do I mean by that? The honeymoon phase goes over, you know? And the belief that I can go to church, and then it's going to be perfect and the honeymoon stage will just go on forever and ever and ever it assumes that going to church doesn't take effort that it doesn't take work those of us that have been married longer than three weeks <laughs> six months know that you made a commitment to that person it isn't perfect they are not there sitting around you worshiping you making you feel great it takes work to sit together and sometimes we come to church with the wrong questions we look at church as a cost benefit analysis that as long as the perks outweigh the inconveniences then i will keep going but as soon as it becomes inconvenient a wrong service time or x y and z ministry is not there or the budget's going places i don't think it should we go somewhere else. Our last myth. The church, in many people's minds, is that the church has become outdated. Why bother going to church anymore? You can download your favorite pastor. You can listen to MP3 worship music. So you can have a better pastor. You can have better music than what we do here. But why even bother? Stay at home and just enjoy Jesus on your own. Many people today are all for Jesus, but eh, for church. But I wonder if we take that approach to any other aspect of our life. Husbands, the next time you're going to plan a family day, your spouse and the kids, today's a family day. And you go up to your spouse and your kids and you say, the best way I'm going to enjoy this family day is I'm going to go on a solo camping trip. I go on the solo camping trip, and while I'm away on our family day, I'm going to be thinking about you. Uh, I'm going to be remembering things that we've done together. But you know what? It counts as a family day because I'm thinking about you. So, you know, we can't really make it to church this week, but it counts because we're doing church as a family at home. That doesn't count any more than saying to your daughter on her ballet recital, honey, honey. 
I really can't come to your ballet recital, but I'm going to remember all your dance moves that you practice in the living room. But I'm not going to be there at that moment. Does it work out in any other area of our life to say that we're going to do church by not going to church? Are you going to do family time by not having family around? Are you going to do a dance, a dance routine or a dance ballet concert by actually not going to the dance ballet concert? I don't think so. So what does God say is the church, what it's all about? To that we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to hear from God's word because that's our authority as we try to break up these myths that I think every single one of us have believed at some point in time. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How are we going to break up these myths? How are we going to see what truth really says? We're going to do that by looking at what are we built on, our foundation, right? What are we built with and what are we built for? What are we built on, what are we built with, and what are we built for to see our foundation our identity, and our purpose. So the first thing that Peter wants us to see is our foundation. Look with me again at verse 4, and then we'll read verses 6 and 8 as well. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. All speaking about Jesus. And then look at verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What the church is built on is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is that Jesus Christ is this huge, massive rock that is laid across the path of humanity. Everybody has to encounter this rock. For some, they see the rock of Christ and they build their lives upon it. And it is a cornerstone in which it aligns everything. It squares everything up. But for others, for unbelievers, they see Christ laid across the path of humanity and it, he is rejected and so they stumble over the stone. They can't get past it. They don't choose to build their lives upon it. They disbelieve God's word and they fall. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And so for believers, Christ is precious. Christ is valuable. Christ is a treasured possession to build our lives upon. But for unbelievers, 
It says here in God's word that he's despised, that he's rejected, and therefore a stone of stumbling. So what makes you part of a church is not coming to this building. It's not passing the membership class. It's not tithing. What makes you part of the church, you really need to hear this, is your acceptance of Jesus Christ as a cornerstone of your life. So let me be very clear. Even on sermons when we preach about what is the church, we want to preach Christ. We don't preach church. We preach Christ. We don't preach how often do you go here. We don't preach your good deeds and your good efforts. We preach Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection and that is the record upon which we build our lives. So I really hope that uh, all of us, especially our guests, don't misunderstand that in a church sermon and what is the purpose of church, that we think that it is going here or being members here or joining here that makes us a Christian. It is our view of who Christ is. And it's on that foundation that now it squares and it gives us our new identity. Look with me at verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 and then 9 and 10 our new identity. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's our new identity. Then go over to verses 9 and 10. He clarifies even more, but some of the same phrases. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and we'll stop there, even though it goes on to more about what is our purpose. Peter wants to shape our identity as Christians. Now, it's really hard for us as Americans to not think individualistically. We read our Bibles on our own. When we read the word you, we think it's talking about me individually, and I have my own faith, and those things are essential and true. But Peter here is really wanting us not to think about our individualistic identity. He wants us to think about our corporate identity. It's not so much what you do as an individual believer, but it's more of a group. So see how Peter talks about us in the plural again as we read verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, plural, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. I think we'd be tempted to think that the word you there is just about me. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But would you notice that Peter does not say you are a holy person. He does not say you are a royal priest. He does not say that you are a holy citizen. All of those words in verse 9 are what? Plural. They're big. We have to have a corporate identity. It is through the church being the church, rather than a bunch of just individuals doing their own thing, that the truth of God's word is upheld and commended for the world. We've used this illustration before, but if you have a wedding ring, the diamond is the gospel. It's the most beautiful thing in all the facets that we can look at and study and admire and to worship God for. But the church has an essential role, and it's an essential role together. We are the prongs that hold that diamond up. If one of those prongs get weak, lady, what, what happens? 
<laughs> you lose your diamond. It, 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 it's the work together of those prongs that hold up that gem. And so actually what displays God's glory to our town, what, what displays God's glory to the nation, is that all kinds of people from every race, gender, nationality, job occupation, financial bracket that you're in, whatever age you are at, that we come together and we love each other and we serve each other and we make disciples of all nations and all people and we don't check your card at the door, right? And it's that unity that tells the world about the beauty of the gospel, that God takes people that once were not a people and he makes them his people. He once takes people that had no mercy and he shows them mercy. And it's how we live together as a church that upholds the beauty of the gospel. Peter's going to break that down for us here by calling us a couple things. Let's walk through these in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a chosen people. That's an Old Testament reference to the book of Isaiah. God is addressing his nation Israel, and he's reminding them that one day they'll be rescued from Babylon, and that they will still remain the chosen people of God. And here... Peter says, you are a chosen race. Takes us all the way back, for those of us that know our Bible a little bit better, takes us all the way back to Abraham. Did Abraham say, I'm going to make myself a great nation today? Abraham say that? No, what happened? God called, God chose Abraham, and he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Then God chose Jacob, not Esau. Throughout history, God takes the initiative of those he chooses. And here, Peter is telling us that we have been chosen. It makes us go back to 1 Peter 1. Same book, just flip back a page. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. You're going to hear the same words here. Sometimes this is a debate among Christians, but it's meant to be a comfort, not meant to be a debating issue. In my opinion, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, next word, elect, chosen exiles from all these other places, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. What we just need to remember and to worship God, take a step of faith this morning and just adore God that everyone around you that knows Jesus Christ has been chosen specifically by God. You're not just worshiping here this morning with a mere mortal. You're worshiping with somebody who is the apple of God's eye. They are chosen before the foundation of the world. So Peter calls us a chosen, special people through the blood of Christ. He next calls us here a royal priesthood. A priesthood. Where does that take you back to? Once again, the Old Testament, there was a priesthood, and in the Old Testament, the priesthood was a special group of people that did all the work for the people. They offered sacrifices. They went to the Holy Holies. They're the ones that talked to God. They're the ones that communed to God. And so now Peter says, it isn't just reserved for a special class of people like pastors. Now every single one of you are a royal priesthood. The Bible tells us 
that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this morning, if you put your faith in Christ, you have just as much access to the throne of grace, you have just as much access to the king of the universe as I do, as any other paid pastor, as any other missionary, you can go directly to him and God wants to hear from you. And he promises that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. That's kind of access that we have, that we are a royal priesthood. But I think it also has some implications. The privilege of being able to be a priest with God, the privilege of being able to have access with God, that privilege has responsibilities. It should impact our lives because in the Old Testament, it was the priest that did everything. And may we not be like the Babylon Bee who wrote a chapter called How to Serve in the Church Without Lifting a Finger. May it never be at FCBC where we say, oh, that's, that's not my job. That's for the pastor to do. I don't need to have an area of ministry. I don't need to use my spiritual gifting. I don't want to lift a finger. What Peter is saying here is that in the Old Testament, yes, there was priests that did all that for you. But now in the New Testament, every single one of you comprise the priesthood of believers. And so now, on this side of the cross, we are all responsible to use our gifts to serve the king of the universe. What does that mean? FCBC needs you. No matter what your gifts are, you are as vital to the health of the church as anyone else. No matter what your gifts are. Here's an exercise. I actually want us to do this. Get a pen. Everyone, get a pen. We're not joking around. Get the bulletin. There should be pens in the back of the Bible, right, or back of the pew. We're going to give you 10 seconds. Anybody have a stopwatch? Phone? Something. You can turn it on. This is a good time for the glow of the screen to light your face. Not to check text messages. All right. Allison's going to give us 10 seconds. What you're going to do is this. I want to see how many times you can write your name down. Gabrielle, we'll let you just do Gabby, all right? <laughs> How many times you can write your name down in 10 seconds? Al just, just your first name, okay? Tell us when. On your marks, get set, go. All right, how many did you get? Five? Five? Anybody beat five? Seven. Seven. Eight? Anybody beat eight? Pat Shagden. Twelve. Awesome. Her name's Patricia, but I, I believe you went by Pat. Okay. All right. All right. We're going to do this again. This time, you cannot use your hands. Ten seconds. Here we go. Get creative. You can't use your hands. Come on, church. Here we go. On your marks, get set, go. All right, anybody more than one? Okay, how many did you get? Three. three? Scribble. Anybody beat three? All right, so three to eight. If I would have given you more time, I think the ratio would have been uh, even larger. But how important is a part of your body, every part of your body. You needed your hands to do what? 
write your name. And as soon as that part of your body was not functioning, that same simple menial task that you've done a thousand times, whether to sign checks, to write thank you notes, whatever it is, now all of a sudden you can't do it the way that you were designed to do it. Because why? A part of your body wasn't functioning. The church, did you know that the Bible calls the church a body? And every member is needy, which means this. Here's our application. You are needy and needed. You are needy and you are needed. You are vital to the church, but the church is also vital to you. And a lot of us think that we can go it on our own with our downloads and our podcast and our Bible study plans and our favorite preachers and our favorite music and that we can just do it on our own. But what does FCBC say? Our mission is, our vision, we'll put it in those words. We are called to make disciples. And you can't do that on your own. You need the church. It is here that we are trained to love one another and to make disciples of all nations. The church needs you and you need the church. Third, we're a holy nation. Holy. What do you think of when you think of the word holy? Set apart, right? It's one of those fancy church words, but are we sure we know what it means? Holy, when we go to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah gets to see God high and lifted up, and, he's, and what does the angel say? Holy, holy, holy. Do you think it kind of misses something if the angel just meant set apart, set apart, set apart? Does that kind of miss something? Does it really sound right? It doesn't quite fit, does it? I would argue that holy is just another word for saying who God is. So the angels around God's throne are saying, you are God, you are God, you are God. There is none like you, there is none like you, there is none like you. Holy, we are a holy nation. We are to be like our holy God because 1 Peter 1 says, be ye holy for God is holy. So now as a church, you can't say, oh yeah, it's good for the pastor to be holy and to uh, mind his Christian spiritual disciplines, but I don't have to be. No, we are a holy nation. And how we behave, how we think, what we say, our relationships, all are to reflect our master's holiness. May we be a church that's not a hobby club, but a holy nation. Last, we are a people that belong to God. Look at verse 9 again, a people for his own possession. People belonging to God. It's been translated in different ways. The King James says a peculiar people. Those of you that have met a couple Christians before you were Christians, you'd say, yeah, those are some peculiar people. All right. Uh, King James got that one right. Uh, New King James, special people. But it really has the idea of being a possession of the Lord. It conveys the idea that God purchased us and that he paid a price for us. Listen up. You can tell how much a person values something by the price they pay for it. You can tell how much a person values something by how much they pay for it. Janelle gave me my haircut. She's six. How much do I value my hair? It was free. All right, true story, we're sitting there, I come home, she has put makeup on. It's a lot closer to the circus side, okay, if you know what I'm saying, all right, I'm just trying to be gentle here, and so she goes, Dad, I, I, can I do a makeover on you? So 
I sit down and she starts combing my hair, but she is combing it as if like it's raking weeds. I'm like, I think I'm bleeding, Janelle. So then she goes, Dad, can I put some makeup on you? I said, no, no, Janelle, guys don't wear makeup. Not going to do that. I said, but you can cut my hair. All right, let's do it. So, uh, so we go out, we get the razor, right? And she is just having a blast with it. And uh, it was a little bit of fun. But you can tell how much people value it by how much they spend on getting their hair done. Ladies, right? I mean, that's a valuable thing. Men on our tools, right? Walked into a guy's shop the other day. I only have Milwaukee tools, right? What does he value? He values that name brand. He values that, that, that standard of things, right? And so we can tell what we value what does Christ think about the church? There is so much out there today where people today say, Jesus wasn't religious. If Jesus was around today, he probably wouldn't even go to church. Have you heard those kind of sentiments? They're pretty popular. What did Jesus Christ think about the church? 1 Peter 1, 18-19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to your forefathers, but you will redeem with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How committed is Jesus to his church? He bought it with his own blood. How committed is Jesus to his own church? He didn't just start it and set it on a shelf. He didn't just buy it and let it collect dust. Ephesians 5 tells us he married it. Christ doesn't just attend church. It's not just his hobby. I'm going to do this, you know, two out of four Sundays. It's my bride. Ephesians 5 tells us that, that he's preparing the church to be his special bride without wrinkle or spot or blemish to present you to him. Church, when we get to heaven, we're the ones walking down the aisle. Look around. Take a, take a step of faith this morning and look around at everyone here that knows Christ and say they're part of the bride of Christ. It's perfect and spotless before the throne of grace one day. Christ could not care for the church more than dying for it and marrying it. So our foundation is Christ, our new identity. Let's wrap it up here with, what. so what? What's the purpose? Why bother with church? What are we here for? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, it ends here in verse 9 with the word, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is our purpose? Verse 9 tells us to declare or to proclaim the excellencies of him. It's a word that's only used here in the Bible. It's a word we get advertised from or to publish, to tell out to tell the world something that they would not already know. We have the privilege of telling the world that God takes people that were once not a people, and he can make anybody his people. God takes his enemies, and he makes them friends. God takes spiritual, adulterous people, just like the book of Hosea talks about. What is sin? Spiritual adultery, cheating on our faithful father. And he takes a spiritual adulterous generation and he makes them his bride. Not so that people can say, oh, look at us. 
but that the glory of God can be seen because he gets more glory for how long his arm of grace has to extend to rescue us. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. God brings glory to himself by bringing a people to a saving relationship with him. How does this change your life? I'd like to ask you, how does this change your identity? Our church, as you know, has been in a transition from Pastor Jeff through me for about two years. And there are all kinds of things that kind of come along the way that make us go, you know, who are we? Are we the church with, with two rows, or now we're the church with three rows? Uh, are we the church that says the Apostles' Creed? That seems really formal. I thought we were the evangelical free church. Where, are we missing that? Uh, we, uh, where the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit still here? Has he left? All these things we wonder, what's our identity? We bring a lot of things to the table, church. There are some that say, you know what, this is a homeschool-friendly church. Right? I'm going to find my identity in how I educate my kids. This is predominantly a white church. Therefore, is that how we define what we are? Is it based upon age? God's blessed us with every single age there is, so I'm so thankful for that. But when we get our identity wrong and we find in how we educate our kids, what income bracket we do, what we do for fun, we're a camping church with tents, not with glamping campers. Okay, whatever kind of church you find yourself in, here's the problem with Facebook and social media and all the connections that we can have. We can narrow our friend list down to those that are just in the things that we are. And we can begin to think that our church needs to be just that group of people that look just like us. That is my biggest argument. There are some out there that say that my small group is my church. That is not in the Bible. You know why that's not in the Bible? Because most likely your small group looks just like you. People your own age, people your own demographic, people that are in the same hobbies. Just look around at your small group and see if it's kind of in that ballpark of 10 years or less, all doing the same exact kind of thing. We naturally form ourselves around that. We need kids in our church. Why? Helps. We need senior saints. We need all of these things to make us realize that none of us, not a certain group, not a certain way of educating, not a certain income bracket, not a certain skill, not a certain class, not a certain gender, all come and build our lives on Jesus Christ. Would we lay down all these other issues that we try to find our identity in and find our identity in Christ as our chief cornerstone? Then that will bring unity to our church. There won't be envy. There won't be selfish ambition. We will say, how can I make someone else look good for the glory of Christ and not be concerned about myself? All of our preferences go away, whether the sanctuary is decorated this way. Can we show that again? Have you guys seen this? I was staring at that while we were singing the song right through it. There is displays, there is lights, there is TV screens. I guess I just want to ask you this question as we close. I know who did that, but they'd probably be embarrassed. Here's how we'll close. How are you going to use what God's gifted you with for his glory in the church? You are needy and you are needed. Every single one of us. Somebody just so happened to find a way that they could use their gifts to serve our church, to take our kids on an out-of-space trip to travel around the world to see that God is the God of the nations. We look forward to praising him in that way throughout the rest of the week. Let's stand and we'll sing our closing hymn.